0: The reading today is from St John's St John's Gospel and you can find the reading on page 1076 in the church bibles. Page 1076 John chapter 4 verses 1 26. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samarian woman as did also his sons and his flocks and herds. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, A time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Marion, thank you so much for, for reading for us. Uh, please do keep your Bibles open uh, and let's pray before I begin. Awesome God, we sang earlier, if we could see how much you're worth, your power, your might, your endless love, then surely we would never cease to praise. And yet, Lord, we know that we don't see how much you're worth. Our spiritual eyesight is so dim, our sense of your transcendent beauty and holiness is so weak. Even the warmest thought of our heart is lukewarm. So Lord, would you open our eyes to see you as you are, that we may truly worship you as we ought. Lord, we know that we need to be converted afresh every day, so we ask that you'd send your spirit among us, and that in your spirit's power, you'd do this in our midst. For we ask it in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Throughout the month of September, uh, we've started exploring the church's new mission statement that we exist to be and to make disciples who love Jesus as their greatest treasure, live Jesus, uh, learn Jesus for the, as their way of life, and live Jesus for the renewal of the world. Love Jesus, learn Jesus, live Jesus. And between now and the beginning of Advent, we're going to be exploring seven values or seven characteristics that we want to and we think we need to embody in order to be that kind of a church. Uh, and if you like, these, are the, these values are what we believe kind of needs to be our DNA. You cut, it, cut us through at any one point, and these are the things that you'll see on the inside. These are the qualities we want to become as, as Christchurch, the way that we do things Uh, around here. And at the very top of the list is that we are committed to being a church that worships joyfully. And that's the primary reason that we're here, to worship God. Uh, In the mid-17th century, a group of English and Scottish theologians came together to draw up something called the Westminster Catechism, a list of questions and answers designed to teach the biblical faith. And the first question famously asks, what is the chief end of man? To which the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's our purpose in life. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Uh, Now, I know I, I, can, I can sometimes be a bit, a bit academic, a bit bookish. I know, I get that. it's one of my flaws. But what it's saying at its, at its most basically, basic level is, we were made to worship. We were made to worship God and to delight in God. So what I'm about to say might sound like heresy to some people, but please hear me out. The primary goal, the primary task of the church isn't evangelism it's worship and any mission or evangelism that doesn't come out of the white hot heat of worship will at best be unconvincing and at worst hypocritical John Piper puts it simply when he says that mission exists because worship doesn't when we're gathered around the throne of the Lamb there will be no evangelism But there will be worship, never ceasing worship. The ultimate goal of evangelism is to call people to worship God, to passionately prefer Jesus above all things. And so the goal isn't just a church building filled with people. Any idiot can draw a crowd. Uh, you can, we could fill this church building if we were to stream football uh, here and give away free beer and, and, and crisps. We could easily fill, fill a church building like that. The goal is a church building filled with people who are there to worship the living God. And what's more, it's my firm conviction that the church is at its most evangelistic when it's at its most worshipful. And this isn't a new insight. This is something that uh, David Watson, who used to be the vicar at St. Michael the Belfry in York, said. He said, when we are taken up with worship, and when we're unashamed of the fact that we're in love with God, and in love with one another, that can be very powerful indeed. When Christians are to be found really worshipping God, loving him, serving him, excited by him, and when their worship makes them into a caring community of love, then questions will be asked, leading to excellent opportunities for sharing the good news of Christ. And it's not rocket science. I mean, think about it. If you were to go into Osset Marketplace and you were to see a crowd of people gathering around something, what would you do? You'd go and Look. Exactly. And that's exactly what he's saying. If, you, if there's a group of people who are entranced by something, you're going to see what's all the fuss about. So what is worship? Well, literally, our, our English word, worship, uh, comes from the old English word, worship, which means to acknowledge the worth of something. To, to worship uh, is to ascribe ultimate value to someone or something. It's about value, how much something is worth. But worship isn't an exclusively Christian thing. It's a human thing. Whatever we put at the center of our lives, whatever we look to for our sense of identity and meaning and purpose, whatever we think we've simply got to have in order to be, wor- to be happy, that's what we worship. Now, we might not think about it like that, but that is what worship is. Worship, therefore, isn't about the rituals that we go through or the words that we say. At its core, it's about the heart. It's about what we love. It's about what we desire. It's about what we thirst for. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, "'Will you give me a drink?' His disciples had gone into town to buy food." The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I don't think it's an accident at all that Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well moves from talking about water to talking about worship. This is a well worn biblical path that they're treading. So, Psalm 42 As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Psalm 63. You, God, and my God, earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Let's just get out of Psalms. Let's go to Isaiah, Isaiah 55. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Are you tracking with me? Worship is about thirst. What are you thirsty for? And so this is the really outlandish thing that Jesus is saying when he responds to the woman. If you knew who I am, you would ask me for a drink. Jesus is saying that he and he alone can satisfy the deepest thirst of our souls. That's why Jesus goes on to confront the woman about her lover's in effect what he's doing is saying you were made to run on God and you're trying to quench your soul thirst by fooling around with sex I can give you the only drink that will really satisfy I can give you the drink that will satisfy you for all eternity and that, by the way, I think is also a really good description of what worship often does. Expose the idols of our hearts. Show, them, show the things that we're really thirsting for in the light of uh, what Jesus offers. If people are spiritually asleep, then you've got to shock them and startle them to wake them up. And that's what Jesus does with the, that, this Samaritan woman. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did all his sons and, sons and livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. So the first thing that's surprising about this encounter is not that Jesus asks the Samaritan woman for a drink, but that the Samaritan woman has Jesus standing in front of her and doesn't ask him for a drink. And the second thing that's so surprising about this meeting, as John tells it, is not that Jesus can give this woman water without a bucket, but that he can give her a water that will mean she will never have to draw again. More than that, if she drinks this water, Jesus says, her soul itself will become a spring, overflowing to others. Again, notice that link between worship and evangelism. it's It's in the nature of a fountain to overflow. That's what it does. It doesn't need prodding to do it. It just does it because that's what it is. And although we didn't read this part of the story because it could be quite a long story, just look down at verses 28 and 29. That's exactly what she does. She runs off into the town, tells everyone, come and see someone who told me everything I ever did. So what is worship? Worship is, I take my cup to the fountain of delights and I drink. That's worship. Worship is coming to Jesus, bucket in hand, and saying, fill it. And mark it well, it's coming to Jesus. It's the looking of the soul to him alone for satisfaction. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst, Jesus says. What's he talking about? Well, we get a clue a couple of chapters later in John 7. Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of water, living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. So the soul quenching water that Jesus gives us is his personal presence by the spirit. And so worship is simply taking our cup to the fountain and drinking. That's what we're here for, Sunday by Sunday. Have you got your cup? it's the poets of the church who are often the best at revealing this truth to us. Uh, so I think of a song uh, by a band called Need to Breathe called Testify. And here's the, here's the chorus. So it's from a perspective of, uh, uh, of the Lord speaking. Give me your heart. Give me your song. Sing it with all your might. Come to the fountain and you can be satisfied. There is a peace. There is a love you can get lost inside. Come to the fountain and let me hear you Testify. Or perhaps Andrew Ripp's song, Fill My Cup, whose title alone tells you everything. This is the chorus Fill My Cup, Lord. Run it over. Give me love. Give me joy. Give me peace. Fill My Cup, Lord. Run it over. I am your child in need. Lord, I need you to fill My Cup. There is, I don't think, any more biblical definition of worship than Fill My Cup, Lord. Or in the words of another contemporary Christian songwriter, Strahan, uh, let me drink you in. That's worship. Because as John Piper has demonstrated better than anyone else I know, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And he goes on to explain this. The way to glorify a fountain is to enjoy the water and praise the water and keep coming back to the water and point other people to the water and get strength for love from the water and never, never, never prefer any drink in this world over this water. I mean, just changing the water image just for, just for a moment. Think about your, your favorite restaurant. How would you praise the restaurant? Yes, you could, you could write a review on Trip, TripAdvisor, something like that. Can you do that if you're not eating there? Well, you can, but it's not going to be particularly convincing. So worship is taking the empty little cup that is my life and bringing it to Jesus and saying, fill it. And then you drink it in, and at the end you give a satisfied, ah, That's worship. And so if Christian worship means to drink Jesus in, the next question is how? How do we bring our cups to the fountain? And Jesus' answer is this, in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? It means that true worship is the worship of both the heart and the heads. Again, uh, John Piper writes this, truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy and a church full or half full of artificial admirers, like people who write generic anniversary cards for a living. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and cultivates shallow people who refuse the discipline of rigorous thought. So worship must be real both to our hearts and to our heads. It must also engage our our affections, our warmth, our loves, and it must engage our minds with a true knowledge of who God is. And what this means, on the one hand, is that joyless worship is a contradiction in terms. And on the other hand, uh, that worship that doesn't engage your brain, doesn't shape the way you think about the world, is, in the words of Macbeth, full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Spirit and truth, word and spirit, these two must never be pulled apart but go together always. And this means that worship isn't primarily external, the things we do, but internal. It's not formalism or traditionalism. It's not a cold, dry, lifeless, going through the motion sort of religion but neither is it warm, fuzzy fuzzy sentimentalism that ignores the difficult bits of Scripture and and just thinks, well, God just loves me the way I am, I don't need to change a bit. Worship must engage us with the one true God, with both our emotions and our intellects. As I... Of course, worship involves outward actions like singing and praying and lifting hands and eating bread and drinking wine and so on. But outward religious actions disconnected from the heart is not true worship. Jesus says so himself in Matthew 15 when he rebukes the Pharisees, uh, himself quoting Isaiah 29. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You know, these words were words that set my world on fire as a new Christian. Because up until that point, when I came to a living faith, that's what all worship had ever been for me. Saying the right, unintelligible liturgical responses at the right time showing up for a 30-minute book of common prayer communion once or twice a year to mark my attendance with the almighty tick. It's not worship. There's no valuing of God in that. It's a religious box-ticking exercise to try and persuade God that I'm worthy of his good graces, John Piper, again, I know I've mentioned him a lot already. He really is just the best on this, uh, I know. He puts it starkly when he says, where feelings for God are dead, worship is dead. If our worship is not a passionate preferring of Christ over all things, it's not real worship, it's lip service. We started the uh, the service today by uh, saying together the words of Psalm 100. It's a call to worship. So let's see if you can say the next word uh, in the first couple of lines. Shout for to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Thanksgiving. I mean... Do you get the point? Shout for joy to the Lord. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Case closed. I mean, so so there is a kind of worship that God doesn't want. And that's worship that makes it look like we're here on a wet weekend. He doesn't want bored worship. He doesn't want murmuring worship. He doesn't want ritualistic worship. He doesn't want uninterested worship. He doesn't want worship that makes it look like we're a bulldog chewing a wasp. That's not what he wants. When the water of the spirit wells up to eternal life in a person, guess what? There's joy. In verse 28, the woman leaves the buckets that she's worked so hard to fill in the middle of the day and she runs back to the town asking people to come and see Jesus. Eugene Peterson writes, joy is not a requirement of Christian discipleship. It's a consequence. You don't have to be joyful before, but you're not doing discipleship to Jesus, right, if there isn't any joy. Uh, If you have no joy in Jesus... I'd venture to suggest that you haven't yet drunk of his spirit. Brian McLaren uh, puts it wonderfully, I love this. He says, to enter or awaken to God's presence is to enjoy a bracing jolt of invigorating delight. The scandalous truth known by mystics throughout history and affirmed in the pages of our sacred texts is that when we connect with God, it is as if we're plugging our souls into a pure current of high-voltage joy. Have you experienced yourself being plugged into that high-voltage joy? One of the Church of England's Eucharistic prayers says that it is our duty and our joy At all times and in all places to give God thanks and praise. It's our duty as creatures to praise our creator. And yet our duty is actually the same thing as our joy. John Piper again, I know, he really, really just is the man on this, explains. The real duty of worship is not the outward duty to say or do the liturgy. It is the inward duty, the command, delight yourself in the Lord. Our duty is to enjoy God. Edward John Carnell put it this way: Suppose a husband asks his wife if he must kiss her good night. Her answer is, you must, but not that kind of a must. What she means is this: unless a spontaneous affection for my person motivates you, your overtures are stripped of all moral value. Do I have to get you? An anniversary card. Yes, you must, but not because you must. Because I want you to want to get me an anniversary card. Do You see, what joy in worship is a similar kind of must. Now, I've worked, uh, focused a lot on the on the spirit, the heart dimension of. Of true worship here because that I think is often the bit that gets the least airtime. But now I want to try and balance the scales a little and focus on the truth or the head aspect. God is not the, the product of our subjective feelings and desires, God isn't who you want him to be. Rather, truth is embodied in the person who, of Jesus, who in John 14 says, I am the way and the And the life. It follows then that to worship in truth means to worship God as God has revealed himself to be in Christ, as witnessed by the Bible. So, worship is more than an experience of transcendence. You can get that at a Coldplay concert. Worship is an experience of the one true God who we see in Jesus. All true worship, therefore, is Christ-centered worship. Probably doesn't sound too controversial, hopefully. But let's just trace through the implications of that. Because you know, there's a, a tendency sometimes with all the different debates and, uh, uh, and controversies in the church to say, well, you know what, at the end of the day, you think this way, you think that way, but we're all just worship the same gods. Well, the problem is I'm not always convinced that's the case. If one person is worshipping the God who we see in Jesus as he's witnessed in the Scriptures, not just in the, in the words of the Scriptures, but in the whole overarching storyline of the Bible, uh, and another person is worshipping God as they kind of want him to be or feel that he ought to be, we're not actually worshipping the same God. We might have the same name, we might say they're both God, but they're not the same. If God is who he is in Jesus, then either we can form our ideas of who God is to what he's shown us, or we're a bunch of idol worshippers. It's as stark and as simple as that. Jesus says, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. And so the question for us then is this, how can we know whether we are true worshipers? And the answer is this, I think. We know we're true worshippers when we've taken our cup to Jesus and been filled with his spirit. And the characteristic sign of being filled with the spirit of Jesus is joy. Joy. The man who found the treasure hidden in the field went and sold all his possessions to own that field with joy. Joy. Luke says in Acts 13, uh, verse 52, the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Joy and the Spirit go hand in hand. When you're filled with the living waters, guess what? You sing about it. True worship is joyful because the Spirit is a singing Spirit. So Paul says this in Ephesians 5, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, singing to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The language of love is song. There's a reason why the Psalms speak of singing a new song to the Lord. Not because none of have been written before, but because a lover just can't help praising his beloved. The day the church stops writing and singing new songs is the day that it's lost its first love. And so a joyful church sings unabashed and unashamed. The great 20th century Swiss theologian Karl Barth writes this. It's a long quote, but it's it's wonderful. He says, the Christian church sings. It is not a choral society. It's singing. is not a concert. But from inner material necessity, it sings. In other words, it has to. It's just overflowing. Singing is the highest form of human expression. What we can and must say quite confidently is that the church which does not sing is not the church. And where it does not really sing but sighs and mumbles spasmodically, shamefacedly and with an ill grace, it can be at best only a troubled community which is not sure of its cause and whose ministry and witness there can be no great expectation. The praise of God which finds its concrete culmination in the singing of the community is one of the indispensable forms of the ministry of the church. What he's saying is that the church that doesn't sing has forgotten why it exists. If joy isn't flowing out of you, you've lost touch with the gospel. The church should be characterized by its singing. The mark of joyful worshippers is that they sing because they know they've got a lot to sing about. You see, here's the really scandalous thing about this story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. This story is a betrothal scene. This well is the exact same place that centuries earlier, Jacob first met his beloved Rachel in Genesis 29. Jesus is wooing this woman. Not in a Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code kind of way, but Jesus is giving himself away. And in doing so, he's showing us something very important about the nature of worship. He's saying that the best approximation of true worship that we have in this life is the kind of intimacy that husband and wife enjoy in the sexual union of marriage. That's the sort of joy that the living waters of the Spirit bring. And just consider this. Don't worry, I'm landing the plane. The person on whom Jesus sets his affections is a Samaritan adulteress. Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria to get from Judea to Galilee. In fact, almost every other pious Jew of the time would make the detour all the way around, even if it took twice as long, which it did. Jesus didn't. He chose to go through Samaria. Why? I've come to seek and save the lost. And friends, that Samaritan harlot is us. We are the ones who can't get no satisfaction. We are the ones who have been looking for love in all the wrong places. And so Jesus meets us and says... If you're thirsty for love, drink me in. You know, there's a place in John's Gospel where waters literally do flow from Jesus' side. Anyone? The cross. Do you want to be filled with the Spirit? take your cup to the cross. The spirit is given from the cross. If we want to worship joyfully, that's where we've got to go. And if you've got no reason for joy when you stand or kneel at the foot of the cross, you're not yet born again. But you can be. So let's pray. And as we pray, can I? To Um Can I just invite you, if you're if you're if you're willing, if you're able, to, maybe let's just stand. And let's just try and and open ourselves to, open ourselves to God. And you might just want to to put your hands out in front of you, just as if you're. Uh, receiving something, and let's just ask the Holy Spirit to come. Holy Spirit, come. Lord, we want to receive whatever you have for us. We take our cups to the fountain that flows from Christ's pierced side. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, release in us the joy that only you can give. Come, Holy Spirit, Make songs bubble up and spring from our souls. Come, Holy Spirit, pour out your gifts upon us. Oh, we're so thirsty. Only you can satisfy. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would touch each and every person here this morning. Holy Spirit, release singing from among us. Holy Spirit, release the gift of tongues. Holy Spirit, release songs that come from you. We wait on you. Holy Spirit, we want to drink you in. So, in a moment, we we we're, we're going to say a, a prayer together. It's a, a wonderful prayer, written by uh, A. W. Tozer. And as we do it, I just encourage us just to have that continue with that posture of openness, that posture of wanting to be filled with all that Jesus has for us. Next slide. Okay. Let's pray. Oh God. I've tasted your goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. O God, the trying God, I want to want you. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me your glory, I pray, so that I may know you indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me grace to rise and follow you up, From this misty lowland, where I have wandered so long. Amen. Amen. So I invite you to remain standing. Uh, The band's going to come and and, and lead us uh, in a song as we respond to God's word. And uh, just invite, if anyone wants to, uh, would value uh, receiving prayer ministry, if anyone here is kind of aware that either they haven't yet, they don't think they've yet been filled with the, with the Spirit, that Spirit that gives joy. Or perhaps people who just feel like they're leaking and need to be filled up. Uh, we would love to just pray with you, to, to, to put hands on you, and, and ask God to fill you with His Spirit.